0: Welcome to our series, Reset. It's the last message. We're going to be talking about resetting our faith. Now, when it comes to resetting our faith, it all has to do with the storms we face in life, meaning it's easy to have faith when it's sunshine and 72 degrees. A little harder to have faith when there's a snowstorm barreling down on your life, right? In Max Lucado's uh, book, In the Eye of the Storm, He talks about a little parakeet named Chippy, who faced a very unique storm. I want to read to you what he put. He said, Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second, he was peacefully perched in his cage. The next, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. The phone rang, and she turned to pick it up. She barely said hello when Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped. You're a far more merciful congregation than the other two have been. (laughs) The owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened the bag. There was Chippy, still alive but stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, She grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Then realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted the pet with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who'd initially written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing anymore. (laughs) He just sits and stares. (laughs) And then Lucado quips, it's hard not to see why. Sucked in, washed up, blown over, that's enough to steal the song from the stoutest heart. Maybe you feel a little bit like that. Maybe life has not been easy for you lately, and you too feel kind of sucked in, washed up, and blown over. It's hard to have faith when it happens, isn't it? Disciples, were going through a bit of a storm, literally. In Mark chapter 4, where I'd like to invite you to turn with me this weekend, at the very end of the chapter is an account of the disciples in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is with them. It's at night, and all of a sudden, there is this terrific storm. Winds come barreling down from the north, caught and compressed in the deep, grooved canyons of the Golan, exploding in tornadic force on the Sea of Galilee like they can still do today. And their little fishing boat was like a toy in the bathtub. It was just being thrown everywhere. And these guys, some of them veterans of the sea, were scared out of their minds. They were sure that they were going to die all by drowning. Where was Jesus? Where was Jesus? You ever wonder that sometimes in your own life when you're in your own storm? Where are you, God? What are you doing? Where are you? Well, he was in the back of the boat, and he was sleeping. The text says that he had his head on a cushion and was fast asleep. They woke him up. Teacher, don't you realize we're all going to drown? Jesus got up, saw the waves, felt the wind, And there in chapter 4, verse 39, he commanded, Silence! Be still! And the wind stopped, dead calm. And the water was as placid as you could imagine, just like glass. And then he looked at his disciples, he asked them two questions on the screen. The first was, why are you afraid? Second is, do you still have no faith? In other words, you've been with me so far. Haven't you seen enough? Miracles? Have you seen God's power at work The Father's power at work through me And you still don't have enough faith They don't That's the simple truth They're still trying to figure out who Jesus is Like maybe some of you are In fact it says at the end of chapter 4 The disciples said to one another Who is this guy? Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him See the ancients Jews and Gentiles alike Were all very afraid of Large bodies of water, can't blame them. People are still that way today, can't blame them. I mean, large bodies of water were seen by the ancients as chaos, as mysterious, as evil. Storm comes from the water, what can you do about it? It would take a God to control it. In this case, God. Could he be God? He said, stop, and it all stopped. Next thing they knew, they were on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. On the eastern side, what's called the Decapolis, there were 10 Greco-Roman cities on that side. No self-respecting religious Jew would ever go to that territory, Stayed away from that stuff. But Jesus has shown up with his disciples. They must have wondered, why are we here? What's going on now? They parked underneath a cliff with burial caves. I've been there. I've seen it. There was a man in those burial caves, a madman, a man possessed by many demons, who would be shouting and screaming. The village nearby had tried to contain him, but he supernaturally would break the chains and the shackles. Nothing they could do, so they kind of abandoned him out there in the caves. He came running right toward Jesus and the disciples, and when he got to them, he just fell down on his knees. And the lead demon, because he had many, spoke out and said these words in chapter 5, Verse 7. Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I guess the demons were already convinced who Jesus was, if the disciples were still struggling. Jesus eventually casts out all these demons to a herd of swine, 2,000 of them that were on a cliff nearby, and they all went down into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. And for the first time in a very long time, the man was in his right mind. The villagers heard about it, and they came flocking out. You would expect them to be all excited. One of their own has been healed. He's now in his right mind. Hey, remember George? Remember how crazy he was? The guy is in his right mind now. It's just absolutely amazing. Instead, they're all angry. They're all upset. They just lost their profits over the cliff. Talk about a downturn in the economy. They wanted Jesus to leave. And so Jesus got in the boat to leave, and the man man asked Jesus, Um, can I go with you? Can I go with you? And Jesus said, no. Jesus said, I want you to go find all your friends and family. I want you to tell them what the Lord has done for you, how he has shown you mercy. Do you realize that guy ends up being the very first missionary to the Gentiles before Peter or Paul ever went? Jesus sent this man. They got on the boat and they made their way back to familiar shores. And as soon as they got out back home, a huge crowd surrounded them, like they always seemed to do with Jesus. People wanting to get close to him, ask their most important question, maybe maybe get a miracle from Jesus. Just rub shoulders with him. And T. Wright says, you know, you can rub shoulders with Jesus and never touch him. There were two people in that crowd that were desperate for a miracle. One of them was a man by the name of Jairus. Jairus was called the ruler of the synagogue. He wasn't a priest, but he had a lot of authority. It's his job to guard and take care of the synagogue, the items inside of it, make sure that rules and policies were followed, make sure the right people go in and that the wrong people don't go in. He knew about Jesus. He would have heard Jesus, seen Jesus, maybe even had a conversation with him, I don't know. He had to have been a little bit perplexed. What do I do with a young radical rabbi from Nazareth? He's stirring up things, and there are the critics that don't like him. The big boys in Jerusalem are not, ups- are not very happy with him. But something happened in Jairus' life to change his entire viewpoint. Luke tells us in a little bit of extra information that Jairus had a daughter, his only child, a 12-year-old girl that he dearly loved. And she got sick. In fact, she got really sick. Sick unto death, meaning she was about to die. And so he makes his way to Jesus. And of course, the crowd kind of parts to give space to Jairus because of their respect and reverence for him, ruler of the synagogue. And he kneels and falls before Jesus. And he simply says to Jesus, Can you please come to my daughter? She's dying. She needs help. It's right there in chapter 5, verse 23. It says, pleading fervently with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her. So she could live. It was a 911 call from a dad to, a, to God saying, I need your help. And Jesus got up right away and started toward Jairus' home. And of course, the crowd moved with him, swarming around him, trying to get his attention. Jesus is trying to make his way. When all of a sudden, Jesus just stopped. And everybody stopped with him. And he asked this question He says, Who just touched my robe? Somebody just touched my robe. Who just touched my robe? It's right there in verse 30. The disciples give him kind of a snarky answer. Anybody here capable of being snarky? Everyone's snarky? Here. What do you mean who you touched your robe? Everybody's touching your robe. Everybody's got their hands on you. What do you mean someone touched your robe? Come on, what do you mean by that? She said, nope, somebody Somebody touched your my robe, my prayer shawl, my tallit in a unique way. Can you imagine being Jairus? Really? My daughter's dying, and you're trying to figure out who touched you? Please, can we just get home before before she dies? Please, can we just get home before she dies? Jesus doesn't budge. He scans the crowd, takes a deep look at them, and she knows she's been found out. This woman, this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, her menstrual cycle would not end. She had gotten in there, and she had gotten a hold of Jesus, and something happened when she touched Jesus. The text says, power went out of him and went into her, and she was healed immediately. That's why Jesus wants to know, who touched me? Not because he's upset. That's to celebrate her faith. When she knows she's been found out, she finally kneels at his feet, just like Jairus did. And she says, I'm the one. It's too late. It's too late. That was the word that came from Jairus' home. Your daughter's dead. She's died. And Jesus overheard those words. And he says to Jairus these words on the screen. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Which is really interesting because if you page back to the end of chapter 4, what did Jesus say to the disciples? He said, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? What does Jesus say to Jairus? Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Fear threatens faith, but faith can conquer fear. So Jesus and Jairus and the others make their way to his home. When he gets there, the professional mourners have shown up. In those days, mourners would come to your home when you suffered a loss, and they would, they would grieve with you. They might not even know you, although in a small town they probably would. But they would grieve with you so you didn't feel alone in your grief and in your suffering and your crying. And Jesus says to them, what are you doing? She's sleeping, which is Jesus' favorite word for death. Read John chapter 11. Well, these are professionals. They know when somebody's sleeping, when somebody's dead. No, she's dead. And Jesus put them out of the house. He grabbed Peter, James, and John, Jairus, his wife, and they went into the bedroom. Jesus grabbed the hold of the little girl's hand. Must have been cold already from death, maybe even a bit stiff. And in Aramaic, he said, that is, little girl or little daughter, get up. And she got up. And she got up. And the professional mourners went home without a paycheck because <laughs> she had been healed. You know, when the gospel writers put together the stories that they do in the scriptures, it's not by accident. It's by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. John tells us there are so many stories, so many things that Jesus said and did that there are not enough books to contain them all. So they precisely choose them, and oftentimes they sequence them for a reason. Because they're trying to teach us something that they were taught. And so it appears that Mark puts these stories together for a reason. He's trying to teach us something, and what he's trying to teach us is about faith. He's trying to teach us something about faith. Faith. I want you to jot this first thought down with me, if you'd like. The greatest storm we ever face is never what happens to us, but what happens in us because of our circumstances. The greatest storm you and I will ever face is not on the outside as mighty and as great as it might be, or what's done to us. The storm that really, that really bothers us is the storm inside as a result of what's happening to us on the outside. It can all be summed up in one word, fear. Fear. We've all felt it. Some of you have it right now. Some of you don't. Some of you will. Some of you had. We all experience fear. And what is fear? There's so many ways to try to define it. I would suggest to you the simplest way to define fear is the sense of losing control, loss of control. I know in my life, I'm most fearful when I feel like I'm losing control. How about you? Maybe that's why you have some fear in you right now. You know, fear that I'm, I'm, I'm losing a relationship. I feel like, you know, that relationship's going away. There's trouble in that relationship. I feel a loss of control. I have fear. Or I lose my, my income. I lose my job. Or I lose my, my position. Or I lose my, you know, my, my health. I can't, I can't control it. I, I can't control what happened with my vocation. I can't control what's happening to my body right now. I can't control, you name it, you put it in the blank. And that's when we feel loss. I can't get, you know, I, the way they look at me, the way they talk about me, the way I'm being treated causes fear. Are my parents going to stay together? Causes fear. Well, I have a friend next year when I move up a grade. Causes fear. That sense of I'm not in control causes fear. So whatever, you, whatever feelings you fear you have right now, the question you want to ask yourself is, what do I feel like I'm losing control of? And how does faith counter that? What does it mean to, to have the kind of faith to get past that, get through that? And to ask that question, I want us to come back to this woman, this unnamed woman in the text, who teaches an awful lot, teaches us an awful lot about faith. Now, I told you she had been bleeding for 12 years, which means that she couldn't have any intimacy with her husband if she was married. And if she was married, it wouldn't be surprise me given those days that she had been divorced already. If you can't have kids, then you have no worth and value in that culture as a woman, and especially if you can't produce a male heir. Not only that, but she suffered greatly. She'd been to all kinds of doctors, and while modern medicine is wonderful, ancient medicine could be brutal spent all kinds of money on some pretty, pretty harsh prescriptions, like one of them in the Mishnah was for bleeding like that. What you do is you, you pulverize some rubber, you pulverize some garden crocuses, you pulverize some alum, you stick it in a goblin wine, mix it, and drink it. Ugh. Does not sound very healthy. Does not sound very good. So her body's a wreck trying everything she could. But she, most of all, suffered an isolation and loneliness because she's considered unclean. Nobody wants to get near her. People will get out of the way for Jairus. He's somebody important. And they'll also get away from that woman, but not because she's important, because they don't want to be contaminated by her uncleanness. She's unclean. She cannot go to synagogue. She cannot worship God. Loneliness, isolation, but somehow she believes that if she can just touch Jesus, her whole life will be changed, and that's what she does. But, you know, instead of me talking about it, let me just demonstrate, show you real quick what she touches this is my talit, it's a prayer shawl that uh, Jesus would have worn, one like it, much bigger, but he would have worn that, all right? And the talit has on it, it has four corners, and on the corners it has what's called in Greek a Kraspadon, in Hebrew tzitzit, and in English we call it a tassel. And while I could do a whole sermon on what this means, we don't have time for that, I just wanna show you an aspect of this, this, little, this little thing right here, all right? So Jesus is walking around, all right? And what she does is she comes up behind him and she grabs one of the tassels. That's what she grabs. And when she grabs that tassel, there is a transference of power and authority from Jesus. And that's what those tassels represented. That goes right into her being, surges right into her. And she immediately knows that she's been healed. Just like he immediately knows something has happened to him. Something's gone out. And when she finally appears to Jesus, Jesus was impressed. Jesus has a smile on his face. I really believe that. And here's what he says to her in the word. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. So here's the question I want to ask you. What does it mean when it says her faith has made her well? Is it her faith that made her well? In other words, does she possess a level or, or a power of faith unlike any others, and that's what made her well? Because if that is the case, we're all, in, we're all in trouble. If God making me well is reliant on the level or the degree of my faith, it puts the onus back on me, not on God. In essence, I'm my own healer if I've got enough faith. And so sometimes you'll hear people write and speak and preach and talk about, oh, brother, oh, sister, you just need more faith. And if you'll send me $1,000, you'll get that faith. (laughs) That's not my sermon. It's not about the quality of her faith. It's not about the strength of her faith. It's about the direction of her faith. It's her faith in Christ that becomes the conduit for his strength and his power to heal her. That's what happens. Tim Keller asked a very good question. He says, how much faith do you have to have? And his answer is, enough to come to Jesus, period. How much faith do you have to have? Enough to come to Jesus. That's what she does. She comes to Jesus. But wait a minute, somebody says. How about all those other people? Remember, Jesus says, you touched my robe, my prayer shawl, my tallit. Who grabbed on to the tassel? They said, what do you mean everybody's grabbing a hold of your tassels? <laughs> she's not the only woman that grabbed. I'm sure there are others that were grabbing on as well. Why is it she's healed and they're not? Because they're not really grabbing on to Jesus. What they're grabbing on to is what Jesus can do for them. Same thing is true for us. Same thing is true in our culture today. People are interested in Jesus, if Jesus can work things out for them. So what we're not really grasping on is to Jesus. What I'm grasping on is to, can he give me better health? If, I have my, if my health is restored, ah, I'll be at peace, I'll be in control. If he gives me the right partner, if he gives me the right, the right relationship, ah, my life will be fulfilled. If he gives me success, if he gives me the right grade, gives me the right school, right program, if I make first team, if I make club, if I have the right body image, if this job will just come through that can just make that sale. Ah, do you see what happens? We're not really grabbing Jesus. We're, we're just kind of we're kind of using Jesus to grab what we think is going to change our lives. No doubt this woman wanted to be healed. But there was something different in her as compared to the others. She saw Jesus as the source in and of Himself. She didn't see Him as a means to an end. She saw Him as an end that could provide a means. And that's very different. How do you see Jesus? Especially when you're in the storm. Can you be satisfied with Jesus in the storm if He doesn't see you through the storm? Because He doesn't see everybody through the storm. Remember when Paul said, I have a thorn in my flesh, I sought God three times, remove it. But God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Remember when John the Baptist is in prison, he's wondering, are you really God? Because I'm in prison, can't you get me out? And Jesus said, you're blessed if you don't stumble over the fact I'm going to leave you there. And there are many, many, many others to this very day who've asked God for miracles. It's not because they had less faith, weak faith, no faith. It's because in God's sovereignty, he said there are two types of miracles. There's a miracle of when I... When I remove the valley so you don't have to walk through it, and then there's the miracle when I walk through the valley with you. And I want to share with you a Wooddaler's story, Susan's story. She comes here at Wooddale Church, and it's about, it's about the miracle of trusting God in a very difficult situation. Listen to this.
1: My name is Susan Spruill. On July 8th of 96, I got a phone call, and they told me to come in and see them because they had found something on the MRI. I had been having double vision and and blurry vision and some really strange headaches. So I went in to see him and he said, your MRI came back abnormal, you have a brain tumor. I felt like I'd been hit by a Mack truck. I'd heard people talk about it my whole life, but I literally felt the wind go out of me, and I sat down in the chair And my first thoughts were, God, God, what are we gonna do? It was actually about 2.45 in the morning. I finally was all by myself and it was just me and God and I pulled out my Bible and I said, Lord, you've always promised you'd never put more on me than I can handle, so I must have to go through this. And if I have to go through this, you're gonna have to give me your peace because I cannot do it without it. It felt like an ocean wave. It started up here and literally I felt it go like this and about this speed all the way down to the very tip of my toes. It felt calm. It was like there was no storm. There was nothing but absolute comfort and joy. I was talking to Dr. McCray about the next steps and he said that there were basically two options at this point and that was gamma knife, which is a, like a pinpoint radiation, or cobalt radiation, which is a longer radiation. It takes, it took about 28 rounds, and so we decided on the cobalt radiation. A month or so later, we did another MRI, and it had started shrinking. I started feeling like normal. Through the frustration of, and the confusion with all that lightheadedness and, and seeing the doctors again and then re-diagnosing me with the tumor growing, I never not once doubted God because I knew that He is still on the throne. When we are at our weakest, He is at a, the strongest point in our life. And when they tell you you have a brain tumor, that's a pretty weak moment. The only place to find hope is in Christ Jesus there's no other place i couldn't have done any of this without him
0: now that's a miracle she's having a 37th mri in june she just shared how recently she went through an experience of being alone with god and once again received from god that tremendous sense of peace and stillness god listen god is in control she may not be in control but god is in control do you realize why jesus calmed the storm why he delivered the demoniac, why he healed that woman, why he raised that little girl from death to life. Do you realize why he did that? He did that to show and to prove to us that he's God. So that in those moments when those miracles that we want to have happen don't happen the way we want it, we will know and remember he's still God. He is still God. But I can trust him. And it's just as much a miracle when I can just find peace in the storm as when he removes the storm. But how do you get to that place? It's actually really simple. And it's a process. In 1 John chapter 4, there's this passage of Scripture that describes God's love. It says, God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. And here's the verse, verse 18, 1 John 4:18. It says, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. That is, as I grow into the understanding that God loves me and I rest in that, and it really doesn't matter what happens in my life. It's kind of like we said last weekend. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care what I think of me. I don't care what happens to me. I know I'm loved by God. My identity is in him. And if God wants to see me through this, then praise God, let it be. I'm going to let his light shine in me. I'm going to glorify him so that the miracle of his presence is seen. And if God delivers me, if God provides a miracle for me, I'm going to glorify him by pointing to what God's able to still do like he did in the past. The reality is God still heals today, and we should ask for healing. But the reality also is there are times when God and his sovereignty choose to glorify himself by not bringing healing, by not bringing the miracle we want, and asks us to trust him so his strength is seen in our faith. How's your faith? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Can you rest in his love? Can you, can you move into his love? Here's your homework assignment. By God's help, I can't do it on my own. I aim daily to practice as a daily thing, grabbing onto God's love by simple faith. Simple faith, Just just believing, God, you love me. Even if I can't feel it, you love me. And listen, even in those moments when my grasp fails or gets shaky, I start doubting and and questioning whether God really loves me or not, I want to reassure you that his love for you will never let go. His love for you will never let go. I I just have this conviction that there are some believers, many perhaps, who when they finally meet the Lord, hear him say something to them like, I told you I had it. (laughs) I told you I've got you. I told you it's okay. And he does it with a smile. I've asked the team in a moment to come out and sing a song by Natalie Grant that reminds us how important it is to, to know the giver, rather than have the gift. To know the Savior rather than experience some form of him rescuing me. To have the hope of his presence rather than all the things he can do for us. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, as we prepare to just take some time to consider what you've been saying to us, Lord. I pray and ask that you help us to see ourselves in our current situation, wherever it might be. And God, I pray that you would help us to realize it's not the level of our faith, it's not the strength of our faith that matters. It's just our faith, it's just believing in you. And it's learning, Lord, to rest in you. It's learning to trust you. It's learning to believe in you. It's learning to accept that you're in control. and loving you. So Lord, you know what everybody's going through right now. You know where everybody is. I pray that when we leave this place, Lord, as many as possible would leave, asking for a miracle and accepting the miracle you choose to do, to see us in and through the storm or to deliver us out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.